0: This is Colorado Matters. From CPR News, I'm Andrea Dukakis. Deaths from heroin overdoses in Colorado doubled between 2011 and 2015.
1: We're seeing a flood of cheap, Uh, heroin coming across from Mexico and other parts in the world.
0: That's Governor John Hickenlooper speaking about Colorado and the nation's opioid crisis last month on NPR. Mexico is by far the main supplier. Over 90 percent of heroin in the U.S. is believed to come from there. The growth of the Mexican pipeline dates back to the late 1980s and one small town in Mexico. Suppliers there devised a unique marketing system, and Denver was a hub. Sam Quinones explains how it worked in his book, Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic.
2: The name of the town was Jalisco in the state of Nayarit. And that the, virtually everyone who came here from that town by the end of the 1990s was coming here to sell heroin retail by the tenth of a gram dose with uh, a system that resembled pizza delivery. So you would call an operator, Every crew, there was usually four or five people in the crew. They would have an operator and three or four drivers driving around town. You would call the operator. The operator would then dispatch a driver to wherever uh, you were, and essentially an international drug deal would be accommodated. And this happened in town after town. They spread throughout. First, it was the western United States and then the rest of, of the country.
0: Who were the folks that were selling the drugs, coming to the U.S. and selling the drugs?
2: Mostly the guys who came up here were not Uh, drug traffickers by profession, not cartel killers. They were also not people with lots of money or uh, land back home. They were folks who had young men who had fairly dead-end jobs, bakers, butchers, Avocado day laborers, sugarcane farmers, uh, things like that. These are jobs that lead nowhere in Mexico. And so they uh, increasingly as time went on, they began to see others like them coming up to sell heroin, drive heroin around a certain city and come back with money, money enough to buy land, money enough to buy a house or a truck. Uh, money enough to interest a girl in marrying them. And uh, this was largely why a lot of these guys went. They were not in it to become the next Scarface. They were in it to simply move ahead into some form of the middle class, and they saw heroin as allowing them to accomplish that.
0: These folks who were selling the heroin chose towns um, very specifically. What made them choose a place to sell heroin in the U.S.?
2: Frequently what they chose were towns where there was very little organized drug competition, no organized street gangs controlling the drug trade. They went to towns where there were lots of Mexican immigrants where they could blend in. And uh, increasingly, as the 90s progressed, they went to towns where prescription pill prescribing was uh, an abuse was known to be uh, rampant because they figured out, they were the first to do this, figured out that the more these pills were prescribed, the larger number of eventual uh, heroin customers they would have. They tried to choose towns not too large, uh, not the enormous cities like Chicago and Philadelphia. They chose instead Denver, Salt Lake, Charlotte, Indianapolis, towns like that.
0: And more specifically, what was the reason Denver was targeted? Of course, Denver does have a sizable Mexican population, so the dealers could at least try to blend in.
2: Yeah, there was a Mexican population that had been around for a while. There was already a heroin uh, market established in the area, although it was fairly light still by the nineteen late 1980s. And I think a lot of times, though, they were led there by addicts who would tell them about places that they needed to go. Sometimes it was very haphazard. I don't think there was much of a plan necessarily where they had to go. But once they discovered it, they began to discover other towns as well. So Colorado Springs, uh, Boulder, these all also became their markets once they were planted in Denver. So did Boise, sort of Salt Lake after that as well. And these
0: guys would, say, drive around Denver, young men, in their cars. And you describe in your book them having these balloons of heroin in their mouths as they were
2: driving. Sure. They would put the balloons of little tenth of a gram doses of heroin in their mouths, and they would keep a big jug of water next to them in case they were stopped by the police. Uh, They could then uh, swig down the water and swallow the balloons and the police officer would not have any, caused to suspect that they were actually uh, heroin traffickers. They normally drove older cars, not very uh, luxurious cars. They dressed very modestly. They did not flash a lot of bling or anything. They were not the classic drug traffickers or street (laughs) dealers. So keeping the balloons on the mouth gave them easy access to the heroin when they had to sell it to the addicts, but also allowed them to swallow it easily uh, if they were stopped by the police.
0: Okay, so you're swallowing these... You know, little bags of heroin. How do you survive that? That sounds like a heroin. It's very
2: easy. Those balloons are very uh, resilient in your body. And if the police don't uh, realize that you've done that, it's a matter of uh, just waiting to defecate it out. And that's basically what they did.
0: But these guys weren't violent, they had to behave a certain way in order to do this
2: job. There was an understanding about the protocol. Right. Unlike most drug traffickers, they could not kill each other. They often competed with each other in the same town. There would be six or eight crews from this one town in Denver or in Portland or wherever. Uh, But they couldn't kill each other because they're all from the same town. They all knew each other. They all knew where each other's parents lived. To use violence against each other to steal market share from one one crew from the other would create serious problems uh, back home. And frequently they were related. They were cousins or brothers-in-law or what have you. Plus they understood that the more violence you use, the more attention that creates among the police they're all illegally in the country so an illegal immigrant with a, a few uh, balloons of heroin would usually be deported pretty quickly not very few charges would be offered against the, that person an illegal immigrant with some heroin and a gun would frequently be facing a significant prison time.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Sam Quinones, author of the book Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic. We're talking about how dealers from a small town in Mexico started coming into sized U.S. cities like Denver in the late 1980s to sell heroin. And it was actually a Denver cop, originally from Pueblo, who started figuring out how the operation worked. Talk about Dennis Chavez.
2: Yes, Dennis Chavez uh, is. is, He's still around. Uh, although he 's retired from the uh, the police department, a real encyclopedia of knowledge about these guys. he spent uh, years i think understanding developing sources and uh, informants from Jalisco worked for a while on a, a DEA task force as it became clear that though they tried to appear to look small time. They were actually connected in in a a vast network of these guys.
0: So it sounds like law enforcement started understanding what these guys were doing in the 1990s and 2000s. How much of a corner on the heroin market do the folks from Jalisco have now?
2: I think that's changed radically. Um, These guys were important because they had a a system that was unbeatable, a franchise that it kind of expanded it was like a capitalist franchise, just was expand across the country. They also were the first ones to recognize the new heroin market that overprescribing of prescription pain pills uh, represented, and we're now seeing that. What's happened with the expansion of those prescription pain pills uh, over the many years is that now also the heroin market has exploded, and I think in many areas where these guys were the only, the kind of the big fish in the small pond so to speak in many cities where they landed say in uh, Cincinnati or in Columbus or in Minneapolis or in in, uh, Salt Lake you now have many, many more people involved in the, dro- in the heroin trade. It's the, the market has exploded. Those small ponds are enormous lakes, if not oceans. And these guys are still operating in a lot of areas, but they are no longer the main driving force they were when they f- first arrived in those towns. It's just too many people. And a lot of folks back in Mexico are seeing now that this is a huge market. And these guys from Jalisco had the, those markets to themselves, more or less. Now that's just simply not the case.
0: You talk in your book about the use of prescription painkillers, and you've alluded to it, that led to widespread heroin abuse. And it was the gradual change in attitude toward opioids in the 1990s that led to so many folks uh, getting addicted to prescription painkillers. And I wonder if you can explain how society's view of painkillers changed over the years.
2: Sure. It was... Really, for a long time, I think doctors' view of these painkillers was was that you just should never use them except in the most extreme situations, and and so even people dying of cancer would not be giving these uh, pills or these drugs for fear that they would grow addicted. That began to change in the late eighties and really began to change strongly in the in the mid nineteen nineties, where increasingly doctors began to think that it was okay to use these drugs that certainly for dying cancer patients there was no problem. Why did you care if the person was addicted if you if the person could spend the last four months of his life in, in pain free, you know? And I would say that, that what also began to change too was a, a real change in the in American culture, Americans wanting pain free lives. And, and then of course pharmaceutical companies and pain specialists began making the arguments, you know, these pills we now know. They didn't have any evidence for this, but they made the claim anyway that we now know that these pills are virtually non-addictive when used to treat pain, that less than 1% of all people who are treated with these pills ever get addicted. That was completely incorrect. And we began to see an enormous, unprecedentedly massive new supply of painkillers.
0: Colorado and other states have started cracking down on prescription painkillers, and the state has a task force uh, to do that here in Colorado. One of the effects of that is that folks are turning to heroin, uh, easier to get, much cheaper, and the price has been going down.
2: Yes, there's just more supply. And uh, it's been coming up from Mexico. Almost all our heroin comes from, from Mexico now. This story is all about supply. We argue about whether demand or supply ignites these drug problems that we have. I would say the supply is the key determining factor initially. This started because of of supply, excess supply. The only difference is this is the first time we've had a drug scourge that did not start with supply provided by drug traffickers and mafias and street gangs, but instead by doctors and promoted by pharmaceutical companies.
0: Part of that was this idea that insurance companies uh, were trying to cut down on costs and were limiting the amount of time that doctors could spend with their patients.
2: Right. This was a time of managed care. And, and increasingly, doctors uh, had, I think it boiled down to about 13 minutes per patient. So it, it the pills resolved an issue for them uh, as a, one way of ending the The appointment is to pull out the prescription pad and write a prescription. Then the patient knows it's time to go. Uh, You're going to send him on his way. Meanwhile, uh, insurance companies began to cut back on a variety of other strategies used to control pain. Pain at one point was viewed as something we should treat holistically with a variety of different strategies for one person to control one person's pain. This could be acupuncture, exercise, physical therapy. There was a whole long, long list. And part of that, but a very small part of that, were opioid pain pills. Increasingly, as the 90s progressed, the pills took over and uh, sucked all the oxygen out of that room, so to speak. And increasingly, insurance companies stopped Reimbursing for a lot of those other strategies because the pills were so much cheaper and were now known to be virtually non addictive, you know.
0: Sam, thanks so much for joining us.
2: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Sam Quinones is the author of Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic. We've been talking about how Mexican heroin started arriving in U.S. cities like Denver in the late 80s and early 90s. Houses along the Front Range can't be built fast enough as more people move to the state. At the same time, there's a shortage of construction workers. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis looks at an effort to train more people.
3: Line yourself up, get your speed square where you want it, and...
4: This warehouse near the Globeville neighborhood manufactures trusses to support house roofs. But a big part of it was donated and turned into a school for construction. Inside is a house... Well, half of one two stories tall with most of its guts still exposed. This
1: in and of itself is just a textbook. It's to learn where plumbing is supposed to go and how is it supposed to go, what drywall is supposed to look like.
4: That's Michael Smith, the director of the school, the Colorado Home Building Academy. Outside the model house are stations to learn how to install a door, a window, or a roof. It's here where students are taught the basics in home building over an eight-week evening course. Smith says the school is unlike anything else available in the state. And by going through the program students will be better prepared to join a crew. I don't want
1: to see the first time you're ever working eight feet off the ground to be the first day of work so why not have an environment where you can take the scaffolding set it up work eight feet in the air get comfortable with it so when you do get a job doing that you can start and be an asset to your employer on day one.
4: Smith says the best way to make newcomers feel welcome in construction is to set them up for success and the industry needs newcomers desperately. Today, there are around 15,000 less construction workers in Colorado than there were in 2007 when the state hit its peak. Smith says the recession killed off lots of jobs. So we chased a
1: lot of people out of our industry who said, I'm not going back.
4: That, along with low unemployment in Colorado, is making it hard for the industry to find the labor it needs to keep up with the state's booming population. And Smith says the consequences can be felt in people's pockets.
1: Our other challenge is how can we build to a product that's an attainable price product? And a lot of that can be done by us investing in and training a workforce ahead of time so they can build that product faster. If it's faster, it means cheaper.
4: And that's what Pat Hamill, the CEO of Oakwood Homes, had in mind too when he contacted Smith with the vision for the construction school. And that vision is growing. The school has doubled its class sizes since its start in January and is adding more instructors and courses. Hamill says his company has invested a few million dollars to get the academy running.
5: Our hope is to get other builders involved and other builders' trade contractors and really creating a pipeline. You know, we've just done a poor job. Of educating and showing that you could have a really great career in the housing industry.
4: Shamaya Hunter wants to find that out herself. I don't have any construction experience. I actually come from a case management background. So it's it's a completely different field, but I'm good in math. I've always been a good student. Hunter is four weeks into the program and says at first it was intimidating. But once you start touching the products and feeling, you know, the tools and and knowing what a two by four is and how you cut it and cutting it at a 45 degree angle, it changes everything. Like, I look forward to it. Hunter says she hopes to become an electrician. Anthony Lee Lucero graduated from the program three months ago and is now working as a maintenance technician. Before, he was in food service for 30 years.
5: I just got tired of the kitchen industry. I was there too much and not getting paid for.
4: Lucero says he's also looking forward to the health benefits. He smiles and shows a bottom row of missing teeth. He says they were knocked out when he was younger and he hasn't been able to replace them.
5: Which I'm ready to fix. Uh, Unfortunately, because of the kitchen, you know, they would always switch insurance and, you know, we never had a steady plan.
4: Lucero says the cranes on Denver's skyline show him construction is the place to be, something he did part-time years ago.
5: I'm I'm just happy to be back. I wish I would have never left the industry because I'd be further off than I am now, but it just goes to show you're never too old.
4: The program didn't cost Hunter or Lucero any money. Student tuition is sponsored by either Oakwood Homes, another industry company, or partners like the Denver Urban Renewal Authority. Michael Smith says most students complete the course, and 90% of those are being employed in the industry. Smith says they expect 350 students to graduate this first year. Next year's goal is 1,000.
1: I know we're making an impact when we talk to our employer partners, and they call up just to say thank you. Can I have another? May I have another graduate to be able to come into our workforce? Is it enough? Not enough today, but it could be.
4: Even if Smith hits his goal, it would take more than a decade to fill the work gap a gap that continues to grow along with a demand for homes that get less affordable by the day. If more isn't done to recruit construction workers, that trend won't change anytime soon. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. Shemiah Hunter,
0: who we just heard from in that story, says she'd like to become an electrician. And her prospects are good. The Colorado Chapter of Independent Electrical Contractors says opportunities for electricians are growing even faster than in most fields. But once again, the challenge for contractors is finding skilled workers. With us is Marilyn Stansbury. She's the CEO of the chapter. And Marilyn, welcome to the show.
6: Good morning. Welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: We spoke about the shortage of construction workers. Is it even tougher to find skilled electricians? Is it a tougher um, skill to learn?
6: Well, first of all, I want to applaud the Colorado Home Building Academy and other um, organizations like it that really are reaching out to help us fill this demand um, that is occurring. Um, one of the things that makes uh, training an electrician different than some of the other skilled trades is that it requires in Colorado state licensure. Um, so, so apprentices are required to do 288 hours of classroom instruction, as well as obtain 8,000 hours or four years of work experience in order to become a journeyman licensed electrician.
0: So it's tougher than in some other states. So
6: it's tougher in some other states, and it's tougher among skilled trades. Um, I've been doing workforce and education for more than 20 years. Uh, and in Colorado, 20 years ago, no matter where I was in the state, I heard we have a shortage of skilled trades, especially electricians and welders. Advanced advanced to now with retirements and this incredible growth in our state um, and we still have a shortage of electricians and so we're working really hard with our contractor members and other um, representatives in the industry to help um, feed the pipeline um, as was referenced in the piece so
0: you were saying the standards to become an electrician in Colorado are a little harder than in some other states is that right
6: that's right um, Colorado was one of um, probably 18 or maybe more states um, that we have reciprocity agreement with that requires state licensure and we support that um, once you become a journeyman electrician after your four years of apprenticeship every three years Colorado electricians are required to realize Um, It used to just be that they would retest, um, but beginning this year, they're now required to do 24 hours of continuing education um, to keep up with the advances in technology, with the innovations in the industry, Um, and it puts it in line with a professional occupation in the same way that our doctors and our lawyers and our finance professionals are required. And talk
0: about why this issue of a lack of skilled labor workers, especially um, in Colorado, is challenging here.
6: Uh, one is because we have, um, as I mentioned, um, we've we've reached retirement age for many in the industry. But the incredible growth that we have seen in residential, commercial, and industrial um, buildings have created this, ex- you know, this expanding demand for uh, electricians, uh, qualified electricians in the field.
0: And what about this issue that I've heard about that a lot of folks, um, laborers are retiring, they're in their 60s, and that is, you know, Causing some of the shortage?
6: Sure, Um, and it is just because we, uh, one of the things that has happened over the years as we have um, encouraged more and more young people to go into higher education, to go into college, we missed the message that we do need young people um, and, and everyone to be lifelong learners. We do need them to graduate from high school and have some kind of defined career pathway or interest area, but that doesn't necessarily mean a path to a four-year degree, it does require some kind of post-secondary education and training like an apprenticeship, a mentorship, a certificate, a community college degree um, that puts them on a path to seamless lifelong learning, whether they go on to get a four-year degree or they stay in that industry and continue to... um, to get the experience and skills to advance in their own niche within the industry.
0: What about the need for more vocational schools? Is that something that needs to happen in Colorado? Well,
6: it does, and in fact, as I mentioned, 20 years ago, I was working on education and workforce development in the state, and I'm so excited that I've seen the pendulum start to swing back, um, that we really do understand that it's not just a four-year degree, and even for those with a four-year degree, there are not only academic requirements, but technical and workforce skills that we need to instill in young people and and in everyone really, um, you know, the world has changed. We've evolved and the system of how we train and educate not just young people but adults needs to evolve.
0: And how does the shortage impact consumers in Colorado? So people who, say, want to build a house or a business, there must be a delay there.
6: So um, anecdotally, we have heard, you know, some people say it's harder to get something scheduled. Um, I can tell you that from, from our contractor members, um, they have said, you know, we we could build more, we could do more work if we had um, more qualified workers in the industry um, i don't have any data points other than you know anecdotally we're we're um, we know there's we know there's a need for those increased skilled weight wa- uh, skilled wage skilled trade positions how do you recruit and train more workers? Sure. Um, so um, a couple of things. Um, our, our our contractors are really doing a lot with us to reach out into the schools and the communities to, um, t- to share what it is an electrician really does. That's one of the things that I think we've lost along the way is just the understanding of what it means to be an electrician. Um, they are very high-skilled um, problem solvers, great at math, creativity in the things that they... Uh, interact with on a day-to-day basis. And um, I was sharing with someone this morning with all that's happening with the hurricanes and the natural disasters that have occurred. Beyond our first responders, the very first people that are going to get called in are those with skilled trades. It's going to be our electricians and our linemen and our plumbers uh, and our carpenters to to start this restoration that's going to have to happen for millions of people. Now, there are plans to
0: phase out DACA, the program that keeps undocumented children from deportation, and immigration enforcement arrests are up nearly 40 percent. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Hispanics and Latinos make up a little under a third of workers in construction. How would phasing out DACA affect your efforts?
6: Sure. Well, because we are the, the, the training program that helps support the industry, the, the, the um, the employer-employment, employer relationship isn't something that we necessarily have insight into, so I don't know how many current DACA uh, uh, students, recipients may be currently part of the industry, but I can tell you that we are doing lots of outreach um, through career fairs and other ways that we can reach out to um, to a diverse industry f- for men, for, um, for those that are um, that are here legally to be part of the workforce um, and for women to attract them to the industry. We also have a very strong veterans initiative uh, to get civilians back into the workforce. Mm. Um, so from a DACA standpoint, um, we have shared with our um, members that they should just continue to work with um, their employees like they're doing now without making changes, and I know um, that the industry respects and welcomes Um, all individuals with diverse backgrounds into the industry, and we'd we'd love to have them work with us.
0: Marilyn, thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Marilyn Stansberry is the CEO of the Colorado Chapter of Independent Electrical Contractors. She spoke with us about the shortage of skilled labor, how it's affecting the state, and what's being done about it. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Denver gets a taste of Cuban culture this week. That song is called Santa, and it's by ex-Alfonso. He's a musician from Cuba who will perform during the Biennial of the Americas, which starts tomorrow. The festival brings together artists, business leaders, and politicians from around the Western Hemisphere. But this year, there's also a sense that something's missing. Here to talk about that is CPR arts reporter Corey Jones, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Andrea. Biennial festivals happen all over the world. they are showcases of exhibitions and talks. Denver started back in 2010, and this will be the city's fourth one, what do people think is missing this year?
7: Well, first, it's worth noting that these biennials are a big deal in the art world. Uh, I covered this festival when it was held two years ago, and it was pretty ambitious. Dozens of international artists and speakers came, and you could find art everywhere in town, uh, from DIA to sidewalks in different neighborhoods. But it's not the same this year. The list of official events is much shorter, and I talked to some artists who feel disappointed by that. One is Teresa Anderson of Denver. She's participated in the Biennial of the Americas in different ways since it started. And Anderson says she sees missed opportunities this year.
3: When I think of what is a biennial, it is like this pouring out of art where you're going to see things that you would never see. You're going to have this citywide feeling like you're just being inundated with arts and culture. And that's not happening.
7: I heard from other artists who also fear that by scaling back those efforts, uh, the biennial won't give, uh, I guess, a full representation of what Denver has to offer artistically. One thing that Anderson points to is an artist exchange that happened in 2015. The biennial sent two Denver artists to Mexico City to immerse themselves and create art based on that experience, and then two Mexico City artists did the same here in Denver, and it all culminated with an exhibition during the festival. But Anderson says that it went beyond that and really fostered deep relationships. Uh, In fact, other Colorado artists like Anderson have recently gone down there to see and to make art and also to talk about important issues.
3: So it really is about supporting each other in a very positive way and having conversations where we're saying we can make a difference even if we don't understand immediately what the difference is.
7: And so Anderson says that she thinks that's kind of the true spirit of the biennial, this organic incubation.
0: Now, a little quick history here before we talk about what biennial organizers have to say about this. there are more than two hundred biennial festivals all over the world. How did Denver get one
7: yeah, so the biggest one takes place in Venice, Italy, every two years. It actually started more than a century ago and now this thing is huge. artists and tourists from all over the world come to it and over the years, other biennials have sprouted. This is a way for cities to try to put themselves on the map culturally uh, so on On the one hand, it's a showcase with exhibitions and talks. And then it's also a way to connect with other cities and cultures. So back in 2010, uh, Denver launched the Biennial of the Americas. Governor John Hickenlooper was mayor at the time, and he really pushed for this. And now we have this festival uh, with a broad mix of cultures and ideas from North and Latin America and then the Caribbean.
0: So... What do biennial organizers have to say about these artists' concerns?
7: Yeah, I mean, every two years or so, this festival looks a little different, right? So a couple things. First, it turns out that they will announce some type of artist exchange that they hope to facilitate, but the biennial hasn't shared details yet. They plan to do so during the festival. Uh, I also took these concerns to Erin Trapp. She's executive director of the Biennial of the Americas.
0: One of the things that we've heard in the past is that the biennial is complex and hard for people to understand. So we thought we'd focus on a few really great events.
7: So one key difference is in the past, the Biennial hired an artistic director and curators to organize a range of arts events. But this year, Trapp says instead they worked with a few close partners like the Denver Art Museum and then asked other local organizations to put together their own events.
0: It's not a retreat from the community here. It's really looking at how we can make sure that what we do is sustainable.
7: By that, she means being more intentional about where the money goes. So the biennial has shifted resources away from things like temporary public art, which Trapp says Denver already has a lot of, and that way they can cover more infrastructure needs.
0: So that's how the biennial has evolved. Um, What are some of the highlights from this week's festival?
7: Well, let's start with Cuba. Uh, The biennial took a group of people there last year to explore and meet people. And one thing they found was an art space. It's called La Fabrica de Arte Cubano, which translates really as the Cuban Art Factory. Cuban musician X Alfonso started this as a series of underground events wherever they could find space to perform. And Trapp says from there, it really took off.
0: And these events became so popular and they started to overrun neighborhoods. The Cuban government finally gave them a building and they gave them this old olive oil factory that they converted into this labyrinthian space filled with fashion shows and bars and art galleries and live music venues.
7: So the biennial will recreate part of that experience for two nights in Denver. Uh, The event is called Havana Nights, and La Fabrica founder and Cuban rock star Ex Alfonso will be here with his band.
0: That's music by Cuban artist Ex Alfonso. Uh, Corey, what else can we expect at this week's Biennial of the Americas?
7: Something else that's new is the Black Americas Project. And this came out of a trip to Brazil where organizers saw a lot of culture influenced by Africa. The Black Americas Project explores what's called the African diaspora. That's a term for when many African people were forced overseas during the transatlantic slave trades. I talked to project manager Alexis Cruz, and she says they want to educate people on this history, especially those who may have... Have connections to it
4: this is also very timely with a new president and a new ideology because we're also the mindset that you really can't understand your future or your present unless you understand the past
7: Now, of course, this is a weighty topic. So Crew says they want to use arts and culture as a way in during the biennial. So there will be Afro-Venezuelan music, a documentary about an Afro-Brazilian religion that has dance, music, and other traditions rooted in slavery, and then discussions around these histories.
0: So lots of dance and music at this year's festival. What about visual art?
7: Yeah. So there's a big opening at the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver. The exhibition is called Saber Acomodar, and it's a Survey of works made over the last 100 years in Jalisco, Mexico. These are collaborations between painters, potters, blacksmiths, carpenters, and more from that area. Uh, think of it as a mix of new and old collaborations featuring traditional techniques and contemporary ideas. And then again, a few groups around Denver will host their own exhibitions to coincide with the biennial.
0: And anything else quickly to mention before you go?
7: Yeah. So just a reminder that on top of the art, there's also a big focus on business, technology and social issues. The theme for the biennial this year is innovating for the future. And so there's a symposium on that topic and then other discussions on issues from immigration to water, a a wide range there. I'll tweet out info on some of those events today. You can follow me at CPR Jones. Thanks, Corey. You bet.
0: Corey Jones is CPR's arts reporter. The Biennial of the Americas kicks off tomorrow and runs through Saturday. You can find more details at cprnews.org. Earlier this year, we invited a small group of Coloradans to dinner. Coloradans with different political views who might not normally get together. We wanted to see if they could find common ground in a series we call Breaking Bread. They were able to agree on some issues, in others, not so much. We'll continue the conversation later this month. One of our guests will be Colinus Newsom, who grew up in Denver and is African American. Her parents came from the South during the last wave of the Great Migration. Newsom voted for Hillary Clinton in the last election. She wants to come to break bread to be more understanding of other points of views.
4: And I also want to walk away not feeling like people really are
6: hateful. You know, that's the part of me that is the most, as a black woman, that's the hardest part. You know, especially when you have neo-Nazis. Like, do you really hate me because of the color of my skin? At our upcoming conversation, we'll be joined by
0: a special guest, a mediator who's worked with Congress. Plus, we'll have an exercise you can try at home to see if you can find common ground with someone you don't typically agree with. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. One of the most violent chapters in U.S. labor history took place a century ago in Colorado. Striking coal miners, many of them Greek, were attacked for protesting dangerous working conditions and low pay. Their story is told in a documentary screening this weekend in Denver. It's called Ludlow, Greek-Americans During the Colorado Coal War. Frososouka Souka of Athens, Greece, is one of the filmmakers and retired judge Chris Melanakis of Westminster. Is a descendant of Greek miners. They spoke with Colorado Matters host Nathan Heffel last fall.
3: Frosso, Chris, welcome to the program. Hello, Nathan. Hundreds of thousands of Greeks immigrated to the U.S. in the early 1900s. For many, the only work they could get was in the dangerous coal mines around the West. In the film, there's a description of what it was like to walk deep underground into a mine.
2: (laughs)
7: Thick darkness engulfed
2: us, and the water froze my feet. The dampness and the cold under the earth were something I had never felt before, something closely related to death. After a long time of walking, my guide pointed out dark shadows moving rhythmically, whose blackened faces, shiny eyes, and the required light on their head gave the impression of inhabitants of Hades.
3: The mines were notoriously dangerous, and the miners lived in extreme poverty. We've posted a photo at CPRnews.org showing coal miners deep underground with burning candles attached to their headgear. Most of the Greeks, uh, Greeks in southern Colorado worked in coal mines owned by the huge Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, CFNI. Chris, both of your grandfathers were coal miners after the Coalfield War, but conditions hadn't changed much despite the strike. Uh, In the film, you tell the story of the events leading up to your paternal grandfather's death. Uh, Tell us that story.
5: Sure. My uh, paternal grandfather uh, had a couple molars extracted. They didn't sanitize the uh, equipment that was used, the utensils that were used to extract the molars. Uh, My grandfather uh, contracted a staph infection, uh, and for 10 days, uh, the uh, staph infection raged through his body. Uh, he worked nine of those 10 days in the mines. On the 10th day, he died because staff. there was no way to treat a staph infection back then. Uh, when he died, he left behind uh, a widow and six children. My father was the oldest of the children. He was 10 years of age. Uh, my grandmother uh, could not speak uh, English at all. Obviously, none of the children really could produce in the mines. Uh, They lived in company housing. Uh, They they were paid by scrip, which was only negotiable in a company store. As a result, uh, my grandmother was going to be put on the street with her children, Uh, But my father's brother uh, went into the mines and started to work uh, the mines so that the family would have an opportunity to have a roof over their head and a place to live.
3: And these workers were essentially indentured servants to CF&I, the mining and steelmaking company owned by John D. Rockefeller, Jr. Uh, So how did the company keep these workers in such poverty?
8: well they they sent their agents to uh, uh recruit the workers from uh, all over southeast uh, europe uh, that at that time 25 million people came to the us from southeast europe half a million from greece uh, uh from greece at that time and uh they promised them a, a home where they went and a good job but when they came here and they they lent them sometimes money to buy the ticket to get here and um, But they put collateral for that uh, for that uh, loan uh, their their uh farms in greece uh, so that when they got here, they already owed money to the company, and the money they made in the in at uh, their work was not enough for them to live and pay back the loan. So they were always the, uh, owing money to the company. They didn't know their rights because they didn't speak the language. So they were kept uh, practically as slaves in the in the company towns.
3: And Chris, in southern Colorado, New Mexico, it seems that the towns these were, were set up via ethnicity in a sense.
5: Yeah, they were. In fact, my father and my uncle uh, would tell us that Uh, Rockefeller in particular had set up uh, the towns so that each uh, ethnic group would live in a specific section of the town. Uh, Because they spoke different languages, there was no common language. There was no way for them to communicate and to effectively organize. Uh, My father and uncle used to tell me that they would have a Greek town and an Italian town and whatever the ethnicity in that particular camp was, and they would associate with people of, uh, of their own ethnic background. And so uh, it, it completely frustrated any
8: uh, ability of
5: the uh, miners to effectively organize,
3: but they did eventually organize isn 't that correct
8: mm-hmm. well with, what the union did at that time uh, was to fa- they found a way to to unite the miners by hiring bilingual organizers because the miners could not talk to each other because of their language differences There were twenty three different languages being spoken in the mines. They hired bilingual uh, organizers, and in that way, the miners were able to communicate with the union. and They found out that they have rights, and they can uh, they can fight for their rights. And eventually, by 1913, they were able to organize.
3: And this was the United Mine Workers of United America. Mine. Yes. The the Ludlow massacre happened in April 1914, and women and children suffocated as they hid beneath a tent when company backed militiamen towards the union camp there. That ignited 10 days of violence known as the Colorado Coalfield War. Chris, tell us about these Greek strikers and, and what experiences they brought to the struggle, uh, which greatly surprised the the company men.
5: Well, because so many of the, the, the Greek uh, miners were uh, Cretan, historically they had fought a guerrilla war against the, the Turks who occupied the island uh, for a couple hundred years. So they were organized. They understood, uh, you know, what it took to uh, fight uh, this type of a fight. They understood uh, how to engage uh, the militia, which actually the militia weren't a true militia. You know, they were mine goons who were recruited into the National Guard. So they, they came with strategy and tactics that they had learned over a couple hundred years in fighting guerrilla warfare against the Turks. And they completely caught the National Guard off uh, off guard, and uh, as a result, uh, they were able to overwhelm them and to seize large areas of territory, uh, destroy some mines, uh, and they were a formidable opponent.
3: Writer Dan Jodakis. Uh, authored a book about Greek-American radicalism, and he is quoted in the, in the movie. He says Greeks weren't welcome in the U.S., and native-born Americans thought that all the immigrants were taking their jobs away, and the Greeks somehow managed to get classified as the lowest form of Europeans and maybe not even European at all uh, to the Americans at that time. Does that mirror some of today's attitudes about immigrants, uh, maybe even in Greece?
8: Yes. Actually, that was uh, the, one of the reasons that we decided to do this documentary. Uh, it, one of the phenomena we have in Greece now is that Greece is changing very fast from a homogeneous society of all Greeks to a multinational, multi-ethnic uh, society and uh, uh, as a result, uh, racism is rising. We actually have groups like the Golden Dawn which is a fascist group that has uh, about 7% of the popular vote and is in the Greek uh, parliament right now. So what we one of the things we hoped to do was to show to Greece to Greeks that uh once we were in the place of these immigrants once we were immigrants ourselves and we suffered the things that the immigrants are suffering now and uh, it was uh, the film was very well received in Greece and uh, it's quite, I think it made a big impression I think actually more people probably know Ladlo in Greece than they do in the United States <laughs> Filmmaker Froso Suka talking about
0: her documentary Ludlow, Greek-Americans in the Colorado Coal War. And former State District Judge Chris Malinakis of Westminster, who's a descendant of Greek miners. They spoke with my colleague Nathan Heffel last fall. The film screens this weekend as part of the DocuWest Festival in Denver. Now, a musical reflection on 9-11. Composer Julia Wolf lives in Lower Manhattan. She raised her family just blocks from where the Twin Towers once stood. Wolfe watched 9-11 unfold up close and dealt with the aftermath. And she wrote a response to the tragedy for solo piano. Pianist Conrad Tao performed the piece recently at the Aspen Music Festival and School. Wolf called the piece Compassion. So it has a lot of feeling in it, um, for sure, uh, related to um, a kind of tenderness and compassion for all the lives lost and all the families
6: and the world at that moment.
0: The score for Compassion asked the pianist to play prayerful chords at first, then a series of noisy, jagged chords shatter the mood. There are people in the world that live with violence all the time, you know, having had an idyllic childhood in every way and a very uh, happy life, uh, you know, this was a real shock to see that kind of tragedy firsthand. Has won a Pulitzer Prize and a MacArthur Genius Grant for her compositions. Compassion premiered a few months after the 9 11 attacks, and the mood among New Yorkers had changed. You look people in the eye when you're in the checkout counter, and in a way you didn't before. And someone would, people were giving everybody their seats in subways, and there was just a kind of I want to help something in some way feeling and I'm,
6: I'm sure we felt that in the concert hall because it just was like that for months.
0: You can hear more of Julia Wolf's story and a full performance of the piece on CPR Classical's Centennial Sounds podcast featuring Colorado performances of music by 21st century composers. Head to cprclassical.org or wherever you get your podcasts. That's our show for today. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is CPR's Colorado Matters.